You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all the words, all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, and tested and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's house, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, We pray that you would mold us and make us according to your image, that you would Help us to see you, help us to trust you, help us to love you, even through these commandments. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, today is a torch week, so you are a, if you are a fourth through sixth grader, some of you fourth graders, this might be your first week. Uh, if you'd like to join Patrick and Gail out and then go off into a separate room and think through the first two commandments together uh, in that conversation with them. Uh, it's good to see you all this evening. I know... Uh, there's several that I haven't met. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I, I, know, I just heard from several of you this week that this week has just been a difficult week for many. Uh, there's a sense in which um, this doesn't, this isn't like a gas station, a weekly fill-up, but there's another sense in which it is, uh, in which we are all traveling along in this bus together, this local church, this bus along towards heaven together. And it is good to be together. Even if you are new with us here, you might have had a difficult week, but we are glad that you're here. Uh, This weekend, actually the last couple weekends, my boys and I have been watching quite a bit of English soccer, a lot of English football. Uh, They have a giant list that they are working on. They are trying to figure out and choose for themselves their own Premier League team. They're picking somewhat a team different from dads. Uh, And one thing as Americans that they can't wrap their head around is that there are no mascots uh, in English soccer. Like, we might be we might choose a team in America because it, the given mascot is really strong and fast. 
there might, but there are no like lions and tigers or bears or even like bulls or thunder or anything in England. It's just a city name or some variation. It's something usually to do with like the neighborhood in which the team originated. So you've got like Liverpool, that's it, just Liverpool, or Manchester United or Chelsea. I'm sure there's like a very interesting book or dissertation to be written out there on like the sociological developments of Americans that we need mascots to make sense of our sports teams. Uh, but seriously, like it's not just our professional teams, but we have made mascots in our universities and our high schools and our middle schools, even our elementary schools. That was a Newton Razor yellow jacket. What in the world is that about? This week I was reminded of the fact that Patrick Gozier was the Cibola Cougar for four years, and he uh, convinced the administration at Cibola High School to buy a new $2,000 costume of a cougar with abs. <laughs> uh, and he, he, got, he even got uniforms for every sports team in which he would appear at games. Uh, even he got a wrestling singlet uh, for wrestling tournaments, uh, a speedo for swim meets, and uh, he didn't have a special uniform. Uh, for chess tournaments, but he got kicked out of a chess tournament as the Cibola Cougar. That is weird. Uh, like, what in the world? Um, Patrick is weird, but there's something about Americans that is just weird. The university I went to not only has a giant costumed cow at football or basketball games, a uh, little, little something you might know of, uh, Longhorn cattle do not wear football jerseys and sneakers, uh, but also they also trot a real gigantic Longhorn cow onto the football field. That's a weird thing. Uh, last year, Bevo was literally, there are some Aggies in the house, all right. Uh, uh, there is, last year, Bevo was an inch away from goring a Georgia Bulldog to death on the football field at an indoor stadium. That's a strange thing. Uh, I think what's going on with mascots, though, is that we want this physical stand-in for our school spirit, for our unity together, even as like elementary kids, for our common purpose. Like we love UNM, but how might we express that to others? Well, we get a hat or a shirt with a wolf on it, a lobo. Like that's how we unite with one another. We find an animal and a picture. Uh, but while mascots may be a strange American phenomenon, the desire, the, the need even to attach ourselves to a physical symbol of who we think we are or who even we think we would like to be is as common, as, is common to all humanity and is as old as humanity. Thankfully, God himself knows our hearts and our inclinations better than we do, and he's, he is in fact a sociological expert. So in the second commandment of the Ten Commandments, God is not only going to confront an innocent impulse to like love our common identity by picking a inanimate object like a thunder or even a cow or a lobo or something, but then even confront a far more sinister desire to make and manipul manipulate God into something and someone that we want him to be. So we have been working our way through the book of Exodus over the past many months, and last week we started a 10-week series through the Ten Commandments. Last week, we uh, heard the first commandment of God commanding Israel to have no other gods before him. And now, secondly, he is going to get us into our desire for symbols or idols. So like last week, we'll first do some digging in the first half of our time together this evening and understanding the law. We'll dig down, we'll pour the foundation, 
And then in our second half of living the law, we'll hopefully begin to build the house and then live in it in comfort and in peace. So first of all, understanding the law. So before pouring the concrete foundation of the second commandment, let's spend a couple minutes together further digging down into a larger understanding of the law, of its purpose, of its function. When we say or hear the word law, just L-A-W in American 21st century culture, uh, we mean rules or statutes, right? Like there is a comprehensive legal code for whatever society that law intends to govern. So there is a comprehensive legal code at the municipal courthouse of every city. There is a comprehensive legal code for in the Supreme Court uh, building in Santa Fe or even in the United States. We'll think more about uh, statutory law in the coming weeks, but this kind of legal code can be amended, can be added onto, but it's pretty much the black or white rules for living in Albuquerque, for living in the United States. But the law, at least the way we translate this word, the law, is not necessarily like that, not a comprehensive collection of statutes. For this week, we're just talking about that word, just the word law. The Hebrew word that we translate into law is the word Torah, which just means instruction or teaching. Later, medieval rabbis would count 613 different laws within the Torah, but they are counting, they're dividing a couple of other laws, uh, including the first commandment that we went, or we spent time with last week into two different commandments and two different sections. Uh, historically, throughout Hebrew culture, the, the number of laws within the Torah is 611. This isn't just an academic exercise, this is going somewhere. Here's something interesting about the Hebrew language. Letters are also numbers. And so often there is symbolic meaning uh, behind words as they are often, they are numbers. So like the name David is actually the number 14. Matthew is doing some really interesting things within his opening genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 with that number. Would anyone like to guess the number that Torah, these Hebrew letters uh, make up? What is the number? No, that's a good guess. 611. 611. This is what the word actually, the number is. This seems to be, the Torah, the the collection of laws here, seems to be a selected group of 611 commandments that represent a snapshot of Torah, a snapshot of God's teaching and instruction, his wisdom for humanity which is continuing on in the story of God speaking to his people that has begun from Genesis 1. And then humanity choosing whether or not to listen, to trust him, to obey. So these laws, we might just say for right now, if if we can translate the word Torah into just God's teaching or his instruction, these are a representative sample of God's spoken wisdom to humans. Jesus would later say this about the law about the teaching or instruction of God. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law, all the teaching and instruction and the prophets. And so, so while there is much more nuance needed, many more gaps to fill that we can, have, uh, we can begin to fill together over the next many weeks, the snapshot Torah, the representative teaching or instruction of God, including this second, second commandment of no graven or carved images, as well as the weirder stuff, like, all right, people, 
I know you might be tempted to this week, but do not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Don't do that. Uh, Well, all of that, we'll think about if that applies to you or not over the next many weeks together. But all of those things are really what Jesus is teaching us, are about loving God and loving our neighbor. So let's get to this second commandment in Exodus 20 together. Let's read again. If you've got your Bible, open up to Exodus 20. You can grab one in front of you. If you don't have a Bible on your way out, you can grab one of these black Bibles over here. But Exodus 20, verses four through six. Let's read these again to get on the highway. Verse four, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, as a reminder from last week, if you grew up Catholic or Lutheran, uh, you were taught that what we just read, what we are calling here at Christ Church and in the Protestant tradition, the second commandment, uh, you grew up understanding this to be part of the first commandment. Like, do not have any other gods before me, God says, and then as a follow-up to that, but not as a separate or distinct commandment, let me show you what I mean. Don't uh, make any carved or graven images or idols. Don't worship those before me. And while there's a lot of truth to that, Uh, Even a couple of months ago, as I was beginning to plan out this sermon series, I was beginning to wonder, should we just do one sermon for these first and second commandments? They seem to be basically saying the same thing. But thankfully, in the past two weeks, I've become convinced and actually really, really thankful to see that these are two very different commandments. Whereas the first commandment is about worshiping the right God, the second commandment is also about worshiping the right God, but even more specifically, it is about worshiping the right God in the right way. Whereas uh, the, the first commandment is worried about who we are worshiping, this second commandment is about worshiping God in the right way. Worship is what we do. It is just what we do. We would expect that to be true if God has created us to worship himself. Worship is something or anything that we do when we just simply consciously or subconsciously ascribe worth to something. So when we are driving down the street or flipping through uh, channels on the TV or flipping through our Instagram feeds or just walking around in the mall or whatever it is, whenever we think consciously or subconsciously, that thing deserves my attention. It is worthy of my time, my energy, even my desire. We are worshiping. So if that's true, then worship isn't just something that we do when we sing five or six songs together on Sunday afternoons. And worship is something that we do uh, not just in a Christian way. We worship all kinds of things that are not God. We are constantly worshiping. We are worshiping things other than God all day, every day. One author, Harold Best, says this, at this very moment, at this very moment, and, and for as long as the world endures, everybody inhabiting it is bowing down and serving something or someone, an artifact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit, or God through Christ. At every moment of our life, while we may not be on our knees, the posture of our heart is bowing down and worshiping something. It's been said, rather than homo sapien, a better name for human beings is homo idolater. This is what we do. 
always looking for things to ascribe worth and value to, even apart from God through Christ. And yet again, this commandment isn't just about worshiping wrong gods. We had all week to think about that last week. It is about worshiping God in the right way. In just 12 chapters, 12 chapters later, after this, in Exodus 32, Moses is going to come down off of the mountain and he's going to find Israel uh, worshiping golden calves that they have made. But here's something really remarkable that I hadn't ever really noticed before until this week in preparing for this second commandment. After making the golden calves and after telling the people, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt, Aaron, Moses' brother, Aaron tells Israel, he tells them that tomorrow will be a feast to Yahweh, will be a feast to the Lord. The people are going to bring uh, offerings, burnt offerings, peace offerings to Yahweh as they, quote, rise up to play. As they rise up to play before these golden calves, they are bringing these burnt offerings to Yahweh, to God. Like, what in the world is that about? It sure seems that. Like later on in Israel's history, where some good kings who want to completely remove the false worship of other gods, they, they, they consecrate Israel again to the right worship of God, and yet they don't remove the high places. They don't remove the Asherah poles, these symbols of other gods that are still there. I've always wondered, like, why not just go the whole way, man? You're a good king who wants the right worship of God. Uh, why, why not just go all the way and remove all of these symbolic uh, manifestations of other gods? Well, I think the same reason that Aaron makes golden calves for the worship of God. That is, in the same way, Israel is not content to worship an invisible God, a God that they cannot see, a God who merely speaks. What the second commandment is primarily prohibiting is our desire to make God into something that we can understand, that we can manipulate and see and even use, something that's a little bit more manageable, than the God who speaks from the fire and out of the storm. Like if, if, if Yahweh is right here in our midst, the people might think, if he is represented for us in these golden calves and then we can like take these calves with us and even kind of go through some ceremonies and some rites and rituals, then surely then we'll be able to get a little bit more out of him. Moses is just up there on the mountain by himself. We can't see what's going on over there. We can see what's going on in front of us right here. We get to set the terms with our God. And yet these gods cannot speak. They cannot move and they cannot save. As Philip Ryken says, to carve God into a piece of wood or stone is to deny his attributes, the essential characteristics of his divine being. An idol makes the infinite God finite, the invisible God visible, the omnipotent God impotent, the all-present God local, the living God dead, the spiritual God material. In short, it makes him the exact opposite of what he actually is. An idol is not the truth. It is a God who cannot see, know, act, love, or save. God knows the images that Israel has been surrounded with for centuries in Egypt. The Egyptians were really good at making gods and then like attaching some kind of animal, a dog head or that of a crow to a god's uh, being. And God knows that in just a couple of days, 
In Exodus 32, Israel is going to be worshiping in golden, these golden calves. He knows that they, like all humans, will not be satisfied to worship a God that they can't see or manipulate. And yet God is jealous for his own name. He is jealous for his own character and his own worship. Now again, like we thought through last week, when we hear of the word jealous, we tend toward thinking about someone who is irrational, who is insecure, who even might be emotionally out of control. When someone acts in a fit of jealousy, he is or she is out of control. But God is none of these. Like a man or a woman who will not stand idly by and watch their spouse find love and even intimacy with someone other than them, God is demanding exclusivity in his marriage with Israel as well. But he is also demanding exclusivity with him, not some version of him. Perhaps a bit crass, but a man living with a blow-up doll or a robot who looks like his wife is not experiencing exclusive marriage with his wife. This is not his wife. It looks like him, or it looks like her. He might even convince himself that it is her, but this wife will not stand by for that. This is not exclusive, healthy, flourishing marriage. God is demanding that Israel is in covenant marriage with himself, not some substitute symbolic version of him. Now, before moving on, what's going on here with all this visiting the iniquity of the third and fourth generations thing? At first, it sounds like if uh, one guy in one point in history worships a false god, then his children and his grandchildren and his grandchildren have no hope. Like God is going to pour out judgment and anger on them, no matter like how righteous or how pure their worship is. Perhaps others in the time were thinking or interpreting that, this verse in that exact way, because the prophet Ezekiel seeks to correct this kind of thinking. Look at this. This is centuries later. Ezekiel says this, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteous of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. You see what he's saying? I, I cannot be held responsible for the wickedness of my father, and my son cannot be held responsible for my wickedness. So if we come from a starting place that the Bible never contradicts itself, even in seeming contradictions like what we just read, what can we say about this? That the second commandment is a warning to younger generations who continue to walk in the ways of their fathers or their grandfathers. Look again, verse five. You shall not bow down to them, these images or these idols, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God is saying, he will visit the iniquity. He will visit the sin of the fathers. He will visit this sin on to the future generations among those or of those who also hate God. Meaning presently, in the future, God will judge that hatred of God also. This is weird, like my kids and I just watched Back to the Future 2 and I had to pause it like every five minutes to make sure that like our brains weren't exploding, to make sure that we were keeping track of all the parallel timelines and all that stuff. God is, there's future and present stuff going on here and God is saying, if you 
are hating me now and your future generations also hate you or hate me, I will also visit that sin or that hatred in the same way. Now, even though parenting can harm future generations, parents can cultivate habits, parents can cultivate uh, even desires in their children through their examples, no future generation can just say, I can't be held responsible. I'm only doing what my parents taught me to do. No, there is active and personal idolatry as well, which calls for active and personal judgment then from God as well then too. And yet here comes the overwhelming kindness, the overwhelming grace and mercy and love even in the midst of these warnings and judgment. Just as the very real effects of idolatry can negatively affect future generations, can affect our children, can affect our grandchildren, even though they too will be held responsible personally for their own sin and idolatry, godly parenting can also positively affect future generations into eternity, which is what thousands of generations, I think, is poetically emphasizing. Godly parenting is certainly not a prescription or immunization for godly kids. If I parent my, my children in a godly way, this does not guarantee their godliness five years from now, much less generations 500, 500 of years from now. But we should, as parents, if we have children, we should be thinking of them, not just getting them into being a respectable college student, not just getting them into respectability in their mid-20s or something. When we parent our children, we should be thinking about our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren? Are we cultivating habits and desires in our children, right worship of God in our children that can then be emulated and passed down to our grandchildren? It appears that wrong worship of God is one of the things that God cares about most that will have generational effects. So, if this is understanding the law, if we, are now, if we have the law a bit in our heads, Let's turn our, our thinking now toward living the law. Let's get the law in our hands. Living the law. While very few of us are building golden calves these days or making idols or symbols of Yahweh, of God, in our homes these days, the temptation will always be for us to pull God into something more manageable. And this plays out in like a thousand different ways. Just think about how oftentimes the way that we speak about God well, to me, God is like, and fill in the blank. Or, well, that's, not just, that's just not the God that I believe in. We might interject into a conversation. How do you know? How do you, what, God, what God that you believe in? To me, God is like, what? Like, where do you fill in that blank with? Oh, you mean the God that you are imagining rather than the God who has actually spoken and even if we don't make an actual image of God or speak about God in that kind of way, we often find ourselves worshiping a God of our own imagination as well. We carve an image of God into our brain that makes him out to be some kind of a divine being out there who is meant to bring me comfort and ease in here. And then this imaginary God that we have carved in our own brains and imaginations, then when things inevitably begin to go wrong in our lives, when we don't get the grades that we were hoping for, when we don't get the, the social life or the friends or the attention or even the spouse that we were hoping for, 
when we don't get the, the paycheck or the house that we were hoping for, or we, don't get, or we do get the prognosis of sickness that we didn't see coming. When we're confronted with death itself, death in our friends' or family's lives, or we are just reminded of our own coming deaths. We are reminded of our own physical weakness and vulnerability. When all of this comes because we have been worshiping not the God who actually is, but the carved God of our own imaginations, then we get frustrated and doubtful or even angry at God for not acting in the way that he should. But the way that he should according to whom? According to me. Are we worshiping God in the way that we want him to be or the way that he actually is? In Deuteronomy 4, a generation later, Moses is reminding the people of this time here in chapters 20 and, and on, this time here at the mountain. A generation later, God tells Moses to remind the people of what happened here. And God tells Moses then, he says, gather the people, this is what he said back here, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And then Moses says, and you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness and cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. You heard, but you did not see. Our God is a God who speaks, and we, his people, are to be a people who listens, who hear the voice of God through his word, who gather near to him and around him by gathering near and around our Bibles, individually and together that we might know and worship God as he actually is, as he, as he has revealed himself to be in his word to us. Throughout our days, that his word is shaping us and forming us because we are listening to him and we are hiding his word in our hearts, storing his word to be used and drawn from continually through each day and year of our life. Knowing and worshiping God as he actually is, not as like a super cool and chill Morgan Freeman God and like Bruce Almighty, not a super demanding or irrational God that appears in the sky and Monty Python and the Holy Grail, not even the maternal or nurturing God in the shack. All of these are creating images, visible images of God the Father which are not to be made visible. These are all falling in line with the human impulse to make an invisible God visible, to make God into our own image about how we think he is or ought to be, to make him like us and thus break the second commandment. Now, dare I say even, we can look for and long for other symbols we can look for and long for things to hold as we pray, things to look at as we pray. The reformers in the 15 and 1600s were very mindful of breaking free from the impulse to have things visible to pray to. We do not pray to images, we pray to an invisible God. We want a God who is chill, we want a God who is nice, we want a God who is visible, we want a God who will do and act in exactly the way that we want him to do and act. 
We like a God who we can put in our pocket, who we can take with us. We can take him out and use him whenever he is useful, but then we're just content to just kind of leave him in our pocket to the rest of the world and to even our own hearts throughout the rest of the day. God is at our disposal because we have made a God in our image, thus revealing the heart behind the second commandment that God is confronting, that we created beings think that we can fashion the creator into a created being, human pride, the heart that God is, the heart behind this commandment that God is confronting, our pride, to think that we can manage and fashion the invisible and immortal and eternal creator God of the universe. We often can talk about our faith, our faith even in God, our faith even in Christ. But really, often what we mean by our faith might be more realistically our formula, our formula for making God act in the way that we want him to. So as long as I go to church a few times this month, as long as I pray a few more times than that, as long as I try to not say too many bad words, maybe limit the amount that I might uh, have to drink this month, generally be a good person, then God will do for me what I want. Or even more spiritual than that, I will never miss a Sunday church service. I will read the Bible a lot. In fact, read the Bible in its entirety every single year. I'm going to pray a whole lot. I'm going to be diligent in the discipline and discipleship of my children. I'm going to be frequent and energetic in my evangelism and sharing uh, this good news of God to the lost. But if we are really honest, reflecting into the deepest recesses of our hearts, do we want God? Or do we want the things that he can give him or give us? Do we love him as he revealed, as he's revealed himself? Or do we just more or less for really honest, want him to give us a life of comfort and of ease. That's not a God. That is a formula. That is not faith. That is just a formula. And as one author writes, a God we can control is no God at all. Because really, a God that we can control is no God at all. It is just ourselves. We have made ourselves to be God and the gravitational center of the universe. So God is confronting our hearts by saying, you shall not worship images of me. You shall worship me. Because here's the thing. God tells Israel not to worship images of himself because they already have images of God. All they have to do is just look around. All they have to do is look around and see images of God. In Genesis 1, God created man in his image. As the Canaanites or the Egyptians might carve little images of gods to keep around, they were to be little stand-ins for the gods. They were to be little markers of the gods' power. Yahweh did the exact same thing in creating humanity. He created us to be earthly stand-ins, to be earthly markers of his heavenly power and authority. He created humans to be his co-rulers in this project of reigning and ruling on earth, to be extensions on earth of his reign and his rule. But we rejected this role. We rejected this role of co-partnership 
Not only Adam and Eve rejected this role as the dignified image of God, but we reject this role every day in selfishness, in anxiousness, in timidity, in fear, even in brazen defiance. We reject this role as being the image of God, of being his extension and symbolic, uh, visible stand-in of his power. In our sin, the image of God is not completely lost in us, but it is severely diminished. It, is, it makes God very difficult to see. It's like our sin has like photoshopped like a smudge across our face. And so Israel, they're like standing here around the mountain and they can look around and they ought to see very clear images of God in one another, but they just look around and they see a bunch of smudges. It's like they're, they're like walking in a, like a living, breathing magic eye or something if they could really focus and cross their eyes, uh, those things always gave me headaches. But if they, if, and anyone who's not like born in the 80s, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, remember going to the mall and finding a magic guy? Yeah. Anyway, they, these humans are standing around the mountain and they are seeing smudged, uh, very unclear images of the gods, of the God that they are supposed to be representing. They do not live and love like they should. They do not reign and rule like they should. And so God calls his people. He calls them by grace, reminding them they have done nothing to call themselves or work their way out of Egypt apart from anything that they have done to begin to live into this rule or this role of reigning and ruling in love. The role of passion for God and compassion for people, of not worshiping images but becoming clearer image of the God who actually is. It's like Marty McFly. He's got this picture of his brother and sister and even himself that is like disappearing from the Polaroid. The image is difficult to see and the life is draining from Marty. But when, he, when things are as they ought to be, there is life, there is vitality, there is clearness in the picture. But... Like Adam before them, this Exodus generation, they will also reject this role. They will also reject of hearing God's word and obeying. They'll ignore the voice of God and instead will listen to their own voice, their own desires. Humanity will continue on in this story and pattern until God himself finally intervenes. When the invisible God actually makes himself visible. They are not to have images of God because God is invisible, but then God gives the clearest image of himself. The image of the invisible God, Paul calls Jesus in Colossians 1, where the author of the letter to the Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Do you want to know what the invisible God looks like? Look at Jesus. God becomes man to live and to love in the way that we humans were intended. God becomes man to keep the Ten Commandments fully. Jesus was tempted from outside circumstances and outside sources to renounce this role of being God's image bearer, to listen to himself, to work for his own personal human project rather than the divine human project of participating in God's glory on earth. But internally, Jesus never wavers. He never believes in the image of some false god out there who exists to be manipulated or controlled. He never believes that obedience to the voice, obedience to God, listening to God was a way of robbing himself of joy. But instead he realized that listening to the voice, listening to God is the path 
of joy. And he believes this so deeply that for the joy set before him, the joy of walking and living with God, of knowing his Father, whom he could not see, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the shame. Now, this seems to be a very unclear image of God. At the cross, we see an image of God who seems to be weak, who seems to be quiet, who dies. But in the cross, we see the clearest image of God. If you want to understand the God of Exodus, look to the image of God whom you can see. The God-man, Jesus, dying on your behalf, living for you in obedience and in righteousness. But look at the cross, a God who takes injustice, who takes idolatry, who takes self-worship, who takes sin very, very seriously, so much that the cross was necessary. But also see a God who will die to absorb all of that sin, all of that false worship, self-worship, and idolatry into himself so that all those who would align themselves to Jesus by faith might have their idolatry forgiven, cleansed, remembered no more. And that through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, like the gravitational pull of Jesus, the true image of God, the gravitational pull becomes so strong for his people that it might attract, it might draw, it might completely like suck us and absorb us into himself that we might be identified with him so that it becomes difficult to identify where Jesus ends and we begin. That we might be transformed into humans with the law written on our hearts, that it becomes our first nature, not our second nature, to want to hear and to obey the Lord. That we live into our identity as God's images, not obeying to become his image, Maybe, maybe, just maybe he'll be happy with me this week if I can live this way or obey these rules. No. But because he has taken these defiant, these weak, these helpless, these smudged, photoshopped image bearers, and he says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, all you who are weary. Come to me, all you self-worshippers. Come all you commandment breakers, come to me, all you sinners, and I will give you rest. And when we begin to die more and more to our own desires, when we begin to stop listening more and more to the voices within our own head, to the false gods and images that we have created in our own heads, we actually don't become less of ourself. We actually become more of ourself. We become the person, the image of God, whom God has created us to be. One of C.S. Lewis's most famous books is called The Screwtape Letters. If you haven't read it, there's this like master demon, his name is Screwtape, and the, the book is all just a bunch of like fictional made up letters that he is writing to his young demonic protege, Wormwood. And sometimes this book can be confusing because if Screwtape is talking about the enemy, he's talking about God. Lewis is brilliant. But I think Lewis has really got his finger on the picture of humanity as the image of God in this book. Check this out. Screwtape writes, One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men, God's love, and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. What God is saying about his love, Screwtape would hope is just propaganda, but he's actually coming to the realization that it's true. 
He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Christ Church, all you humans out there who are created in God's image, you have not created God. He has created you. You are not like God. And praise the Lord for that. In all of the ways that we fail, God does not. He is always just. He is always righteous. He is always patient. He is always kind and full of grace and mercy. He is holy in all that he does. He has created you to know him, to walk with him, to love him, to hear him, and rule with him. But left to ourselves, none of us will live into our purpose. Left to ourselves, each moment of the day, we will worship not the true God, but an imaginary image of God that we have carved in our own brains. But there is so much grace. There is so much acceptance and favor for you who will come to him with the empty hands of faith and say, fill me. I don't know you as I ought. I don't love you or worship you as I ought. But forgive me and change me and transform me. Fulfill your purpose in me by your grace and by your spirit that by Romans 8, 29, maybe you never put these dots together. Romans 8, 29, Paul is talking about what God is doing in us and how he's shaping us that he might conform us, what? To the image of Christ. That he might shape us, inform us more and more to look, act, love, respond, and worship like Jesus. The clearest visible manifestation of God on earth. Make me look like him. Make me into him that I might not be less of myself, but more of myself in joy through Christ for the good of the entire world. Let's pray. Our God, we are sorry for the way in which we lessen you, the way that we drag you down in our own imaginations into something small, into something even visible, into something that we can use and manipulate. But you are high above us, you are in the heavens, and you do all that you please. Help us to know that and trust that. How wise and good are you, O oh God that you are molding us and making us into who we should be. And that by doing that, we're actually finding joy. Keep doing that in us, your people. And we pray for those who are being confronted with how they are worshiping, how they have worshiped, how they are even worshiping now, and perhaps worshiping a God that is not you. Reveal yourself to be who you are. Reveal yourself to be holy and righteous and just, but also kind and gracious and merciful. Help us to worship the living Christ who has lived and bled and died for us but has 
been raised to life for us and sits now on the throne. Help us to long to see his face that we might be more and more like him, finally and fully on that day. For you, Lord Jesus, are worthy of our all and right and pure worship. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.